Now, friends, how do you begin an epistle like the epistle to the Hebrews? I have done more work on the beginning of this epistle than I have on any other book that we have considered so far. Because I consider this epistle right along by the side of the epistle to the Romans, where I've given a great deal of time, and I know no other book that I would put above the epistle to the Romans. And I wondered how I'd begin. And I'm going to do something just a little bit novel today. I have before me some very excellent books on the epistle to the Hebrews. And I'm going to let these men begin the epistle to the Hebrews for me, because each one of them, though he makes a different statement, he's making a statement that's all important and one I would like to make. Therefore, I'd like for you to hear the statement of Dr. G. Camel Morgan in his book, God's Last Word to Man. And will you listen to this statement now that I'd like to pass on to you? The letter to the Hebrews has an especial value today because there is abroad a very widespread conception of Christ which is lower than that of the New Testament. To illustrate what I mean by this, a recent writer has said, One of the best things we can say about human nature is this, that whenever a situation occurs which can only be solved by an individual laying down his life for his friends, some heroic person is certain to come forth sooner or later and offer himself as the victim, a courteous to leap into the gulf, a Socrates to drink the hemlock, a Christ to get himself crucified on Calvary. Now, that's the end of the quotation from a liberal that Dr. Morgan quotes. And he's using that to illustrate that there is a low view concerning Christ. Now, if that was true in his day, it's more so in our day. So let me conclude this opening statement of Dr. Morgan, and I'm reading again. I'm not proposing to discuss that at any length, to place Christ in that connection is to me little short of blasphemy. We may properly speak of a courteous, a Socrates, but when we speak of a Christ, our reference to him is not only out of harmony with the New Testament presentation, but implicitly a contradiction of what it declares concerning the uniqueness of his person. And friends, that concludes the quotation, and that is a tremendous beginning for Hebrews. But let me quote another writer, and another emphasis, by the way. It, too, is all important, and I'm quoting now from Dr. William Pettengill, his book is entitled, Into the Holiest, Simple Studies 
in Hebrews. Now, I'm reading his opening statement. From Adam to Moses, through 2,500 years, and from Moses to Malachi, through 1,100 years, the prophets were speaking for God to man. But at the end of the 3,600 years, their revelation of God was only partial. Then after a silence of 400 years, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. And in that Son, the revelation of God is perfect. Now that, my friend, is another tremendous statement. Now I'm going to give a third introduction to the epistle to the Hebrews, and I'm quoting now another excellent book, Dr. Schuyler English, Studies in the Epistle to the Hebrews. And I'd like for you to listen to his opening statement in the introduction. The Epistle to the Hebrews, one of the most important books of the New Testament in that it contains some of the chief doctrines of the Christian faith, is as well a book of infinite logic and great beauty. To read it is to breathe the atmosphere of heaven itself. To study it is to partake of strong spiritual meat. To abide in its teachings is to be led from immaturity to maturity in the knowledge of Christian truth and of Christ himself. It is to go on unto perfection. Now, here is a further statement. The theme of the epistle to the Hebrews, the only book of the New Testament in which our Lord is presented in his high priestly office, is the supreme glory of Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man. Again, let me say, that is a tremendous statement to make. Now, I have a fourth one, and I turn to Sir Robert Anderson. His book is entitled The Hebrews Epistle. I hope that as we go through this epistle, I'll be able to emphasize this which he emphasizes. This introduction, I trust, may somehow or another clarify the thought. And I lift this out of his introduction. That the professing church on earth is the true vine, this is the daring and impious lie of the apostasy. That it is the olive tree is a delusion shared by the mass of Christians in the churches of the Reformation. But the teaching of Scripture is explicit that Christ himself is the vine and Israel the olive. For God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And this epistle to the Hebrews was not accepted by the Western church for a long time. 
And the reason is found at this particular juncture, because the church wanted to usurp the place of Israel, and they adopted all the promises and spiritualized them and took them for themselves and rejected God's purposes in the nation Israel. And as a result, you will find that the church in those early days became actually anti-Semitic and persecuted the Jew. To say that God is through with the nation Israel is a sad blunder. And I trust that this epistle may be helpful to us in understanding the great truth that a Hebrew is a Hebrew, and that when he becomes a Christian, he actually is still a Hebrew. Just as when you and I become a child of God, it doesn't change your nationality at all, but it brings us into a new something, a new body of believers called the church. And God's calling out of both Jew and Gentile a people to his name. Now, when that's consummated, God will take his church out of the world and he will pursue his purpose with the nation Israel, fulfilling all of his promises to them and through them to the Gentile world in that day. I believe this epistle will help us. These are four great, introductions to the epistle to the Hebrews, and I am indebted to these four very wonderful expositors of the Word of God for helping us get on the springboard, and now we can plunge into the water of the Word today. Now, I have another introductory matter that we must consider And it's always been a very mooted question. And that is, who is the human author of the epistle to the Hebrews? If you are acquainted with the literature of the Scripture, you recognize that there's been no unanimity of thought and no agreement as to who is the author. I wrote a thesis when I was in seminary as a seminary student because this problem interests me. In fact, it enthralled me, and I spent time with it. And I wrote a thesis on the authorship of the Hebrews, and I attempted to sustain the thesis that Paul, the apostle, is the author. Now, I'm not going into all of that technical and scholarly background, because it becomes a little tedious and tiresome to those listening on radio who are not really concerned about that. And after all, the human author is unimportant. The important thing is this is part of the inspired Word of God. But if you're interested in it, I am taking this thesis that I wrote as a seminary student And I've made a very few changes in it. In fact, practically none. I have included some up-to-date material. But you're going to read what a dogmatic green seminary student would write. Now, I take a very dogmatic position there, which very candidly I would not attempt to take today other than 
I may not be as dogmatic, but I still believe Paul is the author. Now, to pass this off in a light vein, let me say this. I believe Paul was the author. I have a thesis on it. We put it now in print, and you can have a copy of it, but you'll have to ask for it. And if you want it, we'd be delighted to send it to you. Now, if you want a reason why I believe Paul wrote it, this is not in the thesis, but here's a reason. If Paul did not write the epistle to the Hebrews, it would mean that he only wrote 13 epistles. And do you think he would have stopped at that unlucky number? Well, I don't. I think he wrote Hebrews, and that would make 14. So we're going to let it go in that light vein today. And hopefully, if you want to pursue this, we'll send you the thesis. Now, when I wrote that thesis as a seminary student, I thought I had solved the problem and that the world would be in agreement that Paul wrote Hebrews. But I find out that today there's just as much disagreement before I wrote the thesis. But if you would like to know our presentation, we'll send that to you. I believe that he wrote it. I recognize that John Calvin didn't accept it, Martin Luther did not accept it, and many others of the past did not. But on the other side, a great many others did. Regardless who the human author is, it would make no difference. The important thing is it's part of the inspired Word of God. And I believe that there is good and sufficient reason for Paul changing his style and for not giving us his name in the epistle. We'll have occasion to call attention to that as we go along. Now, there's another introductory matter that I think I ought to mention. When was it written? Somebody says, why is that so important? Well, it's very important in this sense. There have been many, even sound scholars, that have taken the position that it was written after 70 A.D. Some give the date 85 or 86 A.D., others up in the 90s. If you read the epistle, I think that you have to come to the conclusion that the temple at Jerusalem was still standing when Paul wrote this epistle. Of course, that means it had to be written before 70 A.D. because Titus, the Roman, destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. And Paul had already gone to be with the Lord. As he said, he'd finished his course and he had already turned in his report. So that if Paul wrote it, which we believe, it had to be written before 70 A.D., now, let me say something relative to the epistle that may place it in your mind on a very high plane. We'd like for it to be that. Coleridge said that Romans revealed the necessity of the Christian faith, but that Hebrews revealed the superiority of the Christian faith. That thought will run all the way through this epistle. The comparative adjective better is used 13 times in this epistle. You have here 
that statement, which I think is very important, the fact of the matter, it would be like this. Paul is saying, and probably I ought not to be so dogmatic as to say Paul says, let's say that the epistle to the Hebrews says that the law was good and that now under Christ, under grace, it's better. But that glory is coming, and that's going to be the best. So what you have in the epistle to the Hebrews is that which is better. And the word perfect occurs 15 times with cognate words, of course. And then it is an epistle that challenges us. You'll find in it, let us, let us. That occurs 13 times. In fact, this is an epistle that contains the meat of the word, but it also has a salad that goes with it. Let us, let us. And then the word let occurs five times. And I think that there are two verses that convey to us this better way. In Hebrews 3.1, the writer says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We're to consider him. And then again, in Hebrews 12.3, the challenge is given to us, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Friends, for the next few weeks, we are going to consider him. Because that's what we're told to do here, consider him. And I'm convinced that that is the most important thing that any Christian can do. Now, friends, the first ten chapters reveal that Christ is better than the Old Testament economy. That's the doctrinal section. And then the last section, chapters 11 through 13, Christ brings better benefits and duties. That's the practical side. And by the way, this is the pattern of the Apostle Paul. I think there is abundance of evidence that Paul is the author of this epistle. But as we come to it, I would emphasize this. Though we have this little brochure that is actually a thesis I wrote as a young seminary student many, many years ago, and I've made very little change in it as we have published it now, and it deals with what would be called the problem of authorship and the date of the epistle. It's rather technical. It was written for a professor in seminary and had to meet his requirements. We believe that it will be helpful to you if you're interested in that aspect. But for us, as we begin this epistle now, may I say this very dogmatically. Now I can be dogmatic, though I cannot be about the authorship. I can say dogmatically that we're now dealing with the Word of God, that which the Spirit of God has given to us. And because of that, the human author and the dating becomes secondary. And we're now dealing with the Word of God and with one of the greatest epistles 
that we have in the Word of God. And may I make this statement, and it's not pious can't when I make it. I have said this, I think, concerning three or four books of the Bible. I can say it, I think, of 66 books in the Bible. But I do say it about four books of the Bible. I do not feel worthy or competent to deal with them. That's the reason I let four outstanding expositors introduce this epistle. Then all of them, if you notice, though they each one approached it from a different viewpoint, yet each one came to this one point emphasizing the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we claim today the promise of our Lord when he said that when the Spirit of God came, he would take the things of Christ and show them unto us. And unless he does, we're not going to get very far in this epistle, I can assure you. Now, this first section divides like this. Christ, we have seen, is better than the Old Testament economy. That is, everything in it. Everything in it, of course, pointed to him. But now we see first, in the first three verses of the first chapter, Christ is superior to the prophets. And then, beginning with verse 4 of chapter 1, going through chapter 2, we find that the Lord Jesus is superior to angels, that he's superior to angels. Now, these things are important, and we need to keep in mind this epistle is directed to Hebrew believers. Hebrew believers who stood at the juncture of two great dispensations. The dispensation of law had now come to an end. The sacrifices in the temple that were so meaningful now have become meaningless, and what before God required now actually becomes sin for a believer to go through with him. This epistle will make that very clear. And therefore, it's addressed to Hebrew believers. But again, let me add this, because I've discovered that every expositor takes the position that it was written to and for Hebrew believers, but its teaching is for Christians today, and it's very meaningful to you and to me today. Therefore, we need to keep those two things in mind as we go along. Therefore, to say Christ is superior to the prophets would be meaningless to a pagan because the prophets would not mean anything to him at all, but it would be to a Hebrew. Now, the first verse reads like this. And you'll notice I make a slight change, which I find in the New Schofield Bible, and I feel like they've made a change for the better. I'm reading verse 1, chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, there's several things that we must say about 
that verse there. It begins, as you note, with God. God. And this epistle here has a certain thesis on which it wraps. As you know, when you study geometry, there are certain axioms that you begin with. If you didn't begin with them, you wouldn't begin. If 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4, then we're at C as far as mathematics is concerned. And a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Now, they can prove that. That is sure. But you accept that. And when you do, then you move on and you can prove something else. Now, the Word of God in this epistle here, just as the book of Genesis makes no effort to prove the existence of God. And if you do not believe in God, may I say this to you very candidly and very kindly, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. I didn't say that. God said that. And that word fool actually means insane. There are many forms of insanity. One form of insanity is to deny the existence of God. And we got a lot of nuts walking around today, by the way. Or as one young person said to me, speaking of a person that seemed to be off his rocker, why he said to me, says, Dr. McGee, you know he's not dealing with a full deck. Well, there are a lot of folk that are not dealing with a full deck today because of the fact that they do not believe in God. You will find in this epistle that when you get to the 11th chapter, which is called the faith chapter, he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that seek after him. Now, that is an assumption, let us say, of this epistle. It's the assumption of the book of Genesis. It's the assumption of the Word of God. The Bible makes no effort to try to prove the existence of God. And we have today, actually, courses in seminaries that spend a lot of time. I've been through those courses, and I know what I'm talking about when I say it's a great waste of time to try to build up some philosophic system that you can prove the existence of God. There's something wrong with you. If you can't walk out and look up at the mountains or walk down to the seashore and look at the sea or look into the heavens that declare the glory of God. And if they are not saying something to you about a creator, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, my friend, you're not dealing with a full deck. There's something radically wrong with your thinking. And then the second assumption that we have here is that God has spoken. Now, very frankly, if we did not have a revelation from God and we were without it, I believe that realizing that God is an intelligent person and that he's given to mankind a certain degree of intelligence, that God would speak to us. And if we didn't have a revelation, I would suggest we just wait around and he would speak to us, that the Creator would get a message through to us. He's an intelligence, and he's given to us a certain amount of intelligence, and he can communicate, and he has communicated with us. Now, also, that 
revelation that we have from God is the inspired Word of God. That is the other thing that you assume, that these Scriptures that we have are divinely inspired. Now, I think that God, therefore, has spoken to us here. Now, he deals with that revelation, and the revelation that he's talking about here, of course, is the Old Testament, and the Old Testament as we have it today. Now, will you notice what he says and how he says it here? God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, there are those today that feel like Paul did not write the epistle to the Hebrews, and one of the arguments is because that actually the epistle to the Hebrews is magnificent Greek. It's smooth. It was written by one who was a master of the Greek language, and there is a beauty in it that you miss in our translation, by the way. And you find that right here at the beginning. There's a play upon two words. He says sundry times here, at sundry times. And the word in the Greek is polyamorous. And divers' manners are diverse manners, polytropos. Notice the beauty of that. It's almost poetic. It sounds like Homer. Polyumeros, polytropos. There's a beauty here. But there's more than just a beauty. There is a tremendous statement that is made here. Now, when he says sundry times, actually, this is not a time word as we think of it. That God spoke today and he spoke yesterday and he spoke the day before. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is this, that God spoke through Moses. But before that, God spoke to Abraham. Now, he spoke to Abraham apparently by dreams and by sending the angel of the Lord to him. Now, when he spoke to Abraham, he didn't tell him what he told Moses. You see, he didn't say anything at all to Abraham about the law. He didn't give him any Ten Commandments, but he gave the Ten Commandments later on to Moses. And then later on, he told David that there's coming in his line a king, and that king would be a savior. In fact, David, when he was an old man, said, this is my salvation. <laughs> there's one coming that'll be my savior. Now, he didn't give that to Moses. And he didn't give it to Abraham. In fact, he gave Moses a law. They were not to have a king. They were to turn to God. But God knew the human heart. And in time, they said they wanted to be like the other nations round about them. They asked for a king. And it's marvelous how God moves in at a time like that. He granted their requests. He sent leanness to their souls. But God used that as the method of getting the Messiah, the Savior, into the world. So what he's saying here in this marvelous word is that God, as he went along, he didn't give it all to Abraham. And it was actually in the fullness of time God sent forth his Son so that you have actually a development. Now, this second word, polytropos, divers' manners are diverse manners, that means that he used different ways of communicating. 
Now, he appeared in dream to Abraham, but he gave Moses the law. And later on, he made certain promises to Joshua, and he spoke through dreams, he spoke through the law, he spoke through the types, he spoke through ritual, he spoke through history, he spoke through poetry, he spoke through prophecy, and he used all these different ones over a long period of time. God brought together about 45 different writers, and he communicated his word over a period of about 1,500 years. So the writer is saying something quite wonderful. And by the way, have you ever stopped to think that that in and of itself makes the Bible a remarkable book? Shakespeare's writings are great on the human plane, but Shakespeare wrote them all. You know, didn't wait for a modern Hollywood writer to write one of the plays. In fact, they wreck them when they get a hold of them. But the important thing is that God used a whole series of human writers, different men with different backgrounds and different competence. One Simon Peter didn't do so well with the Greek language, but I'm not going to criticize him. I had nine years of it, and you ought to see what I'd do with it. I'd do lots worse than Simon Peter, so I'm going to let him alone on that score. But God used him. But this epistle to the Hebrews, and I believe Paul wrote it, reveals that Paul was a master of it. When he's writing to Galatians and he's writing to Corinthians, he gets right down where the rubber meets the road. He used the language that they used down on the waterfront. And Paul had been down on the waterfront, traveled by boat. So that this is a tremendous verse here. He says here, God, my, this epistle opens on a grand scale. There's nothing before to try to prove he exists. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now, I hope that I get through this message at least. If you deny the existence of God, may I give you a new thought. The problem may be with you and not with God. So many of these little minds today that have Ph.D. degrees that deny the existence of God. Well, may I say to you, my thought is, who are they? And put them down by the side of God. No wonder he didn't waste time proving anything, because you're going to come to him. You've got to believe that he is. God, who at sundry times, diverse manners, diverse manners, he spoke in time past unto the fathers, by the prophets. Now, who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Moses, David, Isaiah. These are the fathers, but they're not my fathers. May not be your fathers either. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thank God he's our God too, but he's the God of the fathers here, and he's talking to some people who could call Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob their father. And he's spoken by the prophets. Now, Moses was a prophet, and he not only spoke of things future, and that, by the way, is not the primary definition of a prophet. A prophet, prophetes, is one who speaks for God. And in the order of speaking for God, he could speak of things that were future. But that actually is secondary as to his office. This 
may I say again, is a tremendous verse. Now, God has spoken in the past by the prophets and to the fathers. The Old Testament, very frankly, it wasn't given to the Scotch people in Scotland. That's not where I got it. My ancestors on one side, they came from up there, but that bunch of barbarians and pagans that were there, they never had the Old Testament. It was brought to them later on. So that here, we're speaking about a certain people. Now, I hope before we get through at this first verse that we've established that. Friends, it's important to read Scripture aright, to at least let it say what it says, and not make it say something that we want to conform to a theory or to a doctrine. Now, verse 2 begins, "...hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son." The literal is, "...to us God spoke in the Son." Now, we see here, he's saying, "...he hath in these last days spoken unto us." And the us, I think, is very important. He's spoken to the same ones that he spoke to the fathers, by the prophets, in the Old Testament. Therefore, these were Hebrew believers. Now, if God has given his final word in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is the final word for you and me today. And you remember the Father out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. And he is the one that is before us. Now, he says he hath spoken unto us by the Son. Therefore, Christ is superior to any of the Old Testament writers because the revelation is filled up in him. He fulfills all of the Old Testament, and he himself gives God's final word to man. Or as we said last time, if God spoke out of heaven today, he'd just have to say something that Jesus has already said because of the fact the final word came through the Son of God when he was here 1,900 years ago. As he himself said, the Spirit of God will take the things of mine and show them unto you. And the Spirit of God, speaking through John and James and Dr. Luke and Paul, has given us the full revelation from God. And now he shows the superiority of the Son in seven matchless statements that we have here. And these statements, I'm sure that none of us feel like that we comprehend any one of them completely. Now, I want us to notice it. I'm reading verse 2. "...hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds." Now, two of the statements are here. Number one is, "...whom he hath appointed heir of all things." Now, that reveals the program for the future. The Lord Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. But very frankly, there's something here that we need to look at rather carefully. All things were made by him, John says, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
So it belongs to him already. Creation is his, for he created it, we are told. And so how can he be the heir of all things? May I say to you, he came down to this earth and took upon himself our humanity. And the first man in the human race was given dominion over this creation. And we don't emphasize that enough because in Genesis, tremendous statements are made with just a few words. We had one of the Christians in Israel when we were over there some time ago speak to us. And when he came to the end of his message, he wanted to give an illustration. He says, I want to say this to you in little words. And what he meant was few words. He intended to make it brief. Well, that's the way Moses wrote the first 11 chapters of Genesis with little words. And when I say little words, he's stating it briefly. And when God says he gave to man dominion, he didn't make him sort of a first-class gardener to set out rose bushes and prune the plum trees. That's not what Adam did. Adam had dominion, and dominion has to do with rulership. All creation was under him. I think that when he wanted to reign, he called in the rain. I think that when he wanted the heat turned on, why, he turned it on. I think he controlled this earth. Now, he lost that. And when the Lord Jesus came to this earth, he became a man. And you'll notice that one of the reasons he performed certain miracles, he performed them in every realm, the natural realm, the physical realm, he had control of the human body, had control of nature. He could still the storm, and he could feed the 5,000. He recovered that. Now the Lord Jesus is going to be heir of all things. He recovered what Adam lost. And we're told in Scripture that we are heirs of God also, and we're joint heirs with Christ. Now that's an interesting word, joint heirs. And that doesn't mean equal heirs. Let me illustrate that. Some folk have been very much interested in our radio and have given it wonderful support, and they'll mention us in the will. And sometimes they put us in as a joint heir and sometimes equal. Sometimes they say, well, I want so much to go to this mission cause and so much to the through the Bible. Well, that's equal, that is, each one of us. And we could squander it, I guess, if we wanted to. But you can be sure of one thing, we don't do that here. But the thing is, it would be ours. But sometimes you're a joint heir. And that means somebody else has control of all of it, and they just allocate out so much to each one at the proper time. And they manage the estate. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ... He's the heir, and we're just joint heirs, and that means that he still controls it, but he may let me have a little patch somewhere. He may give me charge of some little something, but that's the way that we're joint heirs today with Christ, so that we have an inheritance, friends, that's incorruptible, it's undefiled and unfading, and it's reserved in heaven for us. Why? Because of the many wonderful things he did for us, he recovered what Adam lost and even more 
than that. And we today are joint heir with him so that he's the one that's going to inherit everything. And as far as I know, no prophet was ever promised that in the Old Testament. Now we're told of second thing here, by whom also he made the worlds. Now a great many people interpret this as to creation, that this refers to Genesis 1.1. Well, actually it does not refer to that at all. The word here for worlds is ion. It means ages, by whom he created the ages. Now, frankly, that's a little bit more than just creator. That lends purpose in everything. As the heir, that gives the program for the future. And now, in the fact that he made the ages, that's purpose in everything. Now, he not only created everything, he did it for a purpose. And so, the Bible makes sense, friends. God created man, put him in a garden, and put down one condition. He was not to eat of a certain tree. Well, there was nothing wrong with that tree. I think the fruit on it was good. But that was God's test of that man. And after all, it was not the fruit on the tree. It was the pear on the ground. That's where the problem was. And so man absolutely and completely failed at that time. God has a program, you see, and he has a purpose in everything. And so there comes on another period in which God tests man. And then he gave man the law. And today you and I live under grace. That's the way we got in. We'd never be able to get in below. It wasn't given to us to begin with. And the second thing is, you and I can't keep it. We can't measure up the righteous standard that God has set. And God just can't save us by works at all. And I think that ought to be quite obvious to every person that God just can't save us by works. And the reason for that, I think, is very satisfactory. He can't save us by perfect works because you and I can't offer that. We can't measure up to it. And he can't save us by imperfect works because his standard is higher than that. And therefore, God had to have another way. And today it's by grace you're saved. Now, the Lord Jesus not only is the creator, but there is purpose to this universe. This universe that you and I living in today It's not running at breakneck speed through space and time. Where in the world could an idiotic notion like that originate? That you and I are living in a universe that's running wild today and that it's like a car that's lost the driver. The interesting thing is when a car loses the driver, there's a wreck. And this universe, according even to the scientists, has been running millions of years. And it's been doing pretty well, by the way. The sun comes up at a certain time every morning. It's certainly very precise. The moon out there, they can send one of the men that works on the module here, That every one of them that's been to the moon. He says, all you got to do is aim it, and the moon will be there when the module gets there because you can always depend on it. It's not running. Why? Suppose the moon, when it would see this module come and say, I'm going to fool those boys, and he heads back another direction. My friend, this is not a mad universe that you and I live in. It has purpose in it. And the Lord Jesus is the one that gives it purpose.
Now, will you notice, as we move on down, we have another statement made here. Three, and that is in verse 3, too, who being the brightness of his glory. Now, that is a very wonderful statement there, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now, brightness here means the outshining. It means actually the effulgence here. And I think that the material sun out yonder in space gives us a good illustration of this. We could never know the glory of this material sun. To begin with, you can't look at it directly. It would blind you if you did. But from the rays of the sun, we get light, we get heat, and actually, I think, healing from it. And that's the way we know about the sun. Now, we'd never know anything about God apart from the revelation that God's given in His Son. You see, He is the brightness We never see God. I've never seen him. I'm sure you haven't. But I know about him now through Jesus Christ, just as the rays of the sun with their warmth and light tell me about the physical sun. The Lord Jesus reveals God to us today. Now, when he uses this other expression here, the express image of his person. Now, that word, express image, actually means steel engraving. The word is character, and we get our word character from that. So that we say today that the Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation of God because he is God. And that is the important thing. He's not just the printed material. He is the steel engraving of God because he is the exact copy. He is the image of God. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, "...in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily." How wonderful he is. And then we're told a fourth thing here. Will you notice what is said here concerning him? "...and upholding all things by the word of his power." I like to put it like this. That little baby lying helpless on the bosom of Mary yonder in Bethlehem could have spoken this universe out of existence. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, he not only created all things by his word, but he holds everything together today. And have you ever stopped to think about the power that's required to hold it together? Man has learned very little about it, but he has learned a little. Man took the atom, for instance, a little bitty fella, and he untied it. And when he untied that little atom and split the atom, as they say, may I say to you, he sure did release a lot of power. Well, who put all that power in there? And who holds all the little atoms together? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he furnishes the program the purpose, he is the person of God, and he's the preserver of all things. He not only created the universe by his word, but he holds everything together. And if he let go today, well, to begin with, you and I are held on this world that we live in. We don't live in it, we live on the thing. And 
if he didn't hold us here by Elmer's glue, they call it gravitation, but we'd go flying out in space. He holds everything together. And this universe would come unglued without his constant supervision and power. Now, he's not just an atlas holding up the earth passively, and he's not like the little Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. He today is actively engaged in maintaining all of creation. And in my book, friends, that's greater than creating it at the very beginning, is holding it together, keeping the thing functioning, keeping it running. And that is one of the tremendous things that he is doing today. Now, will you notice there's a fifth thing here, and that is a wonderful thing. When he had by himself purged our sins. Now, that's pardon for our sins. And he purged our sins. And by the way, this is the only purgatory that's mentioned in the Bible. He went through it for you and me. And there's no purgatory for anyone that trusts Christ because he purged our sins. He has paid the penalty. How wonderful it is. Now, up to this point, we only got to Bethlehem. Now we've come to Calvary. And he today offers pardon for our sins. And the purging was accomplished by what he did on Calvary for you and me. And today we're accepted in the Beloved. And you can't add to anything that he's done for us. The number six tremendous statement, provision for the present, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, actually, this is the message of Hebrews. And there are two or three things that I must say as we pass on, because we will be coming back to this. First of all, let me say that he received a glory and a majesty when he went back to the Father's throne that he never had before. In other words, there is something in heaven today that was not there 2,500 years ago or in eternity past. And that is the man in the glory with nail-pierced hands and the prince on his feet and the spear wound in his side. And I think even in a glorified body they are there, and we shall know him by the print of the nails in his hands. We're going to see him someday, but at this very moment, he is there, and he was not there like that. He was God 2,500 years ago, but today he is the God-man. And when it says he sat down, it doesn't mean he's tired or he's resting or that he's doing nothing. He's not twiddling his thumbs. It means that when he finished our redemption that he sat down because it was complete. And that's exactly what the seventh day meant in creation. God, it says, rested on the seventh day. Why? Was he tired? No, John Wesley said he created the universe and didn't even half try. God wasn't tired. It was complete. There was nothing that he needed to do. I have never, since I've been a pastor, been able to close my desk and go home and say everything has been done. There's always something incomplete. 
And you ought to see my desk right now. It's filled with there are a lot of these wonderful letters I'd like to read to you, and I ought to answer them, but I can't answer them, friends. There are too much other things to be done. I have to make these tapes. I've got to get this five-year program out, and I love it. This is the part of my ministry I rejoice in, but nothing's complete. But he sat down because redemption's complete. And friends, you can't lift your little finger today to add to the redemption he wrought for you on the cross. He has already completed your redemption, and we are complete in Christ. Let me finish what we said a while ago in Colossians. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, Colossians 2.10, and you are complete in him. You are made full in him, and we're accepted in the Beloved. Now, that is the meaning of that he sat down. But there's another aspect, and this is the aspect that I think the writer who said, there's a man in the glory, but the church has lost sight of him. And I think that what he had in mind is the present ministry of Christ. Now, he today has a ministry, and that ministry can be expressed like this. He died down here to save us. He lives up there to keep us saved. He has a ministry today, a ministry of intercession, a ministry of shepherding, a ministry of discipline, his church. And he is still at God's right hand, still interested in the church, and he's available for you today. What do you need, friend? Do you need mercy? Do you need help? Do you need wisdom? What do you need? Well, why don't you go to him? Tell him what your problem is. Have you done that? Have you laid out your problem before him? Have you asked him to intervene in your behalf and to work it out according to his will? And by the way, he will work it out according to his will, not yours. Prayer is not to persuade God to do something that he didn't intend to do. Prayer is for you and me to get in line with the program of God. And therefore, he's there today. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what the Hebrews is going to tell us, the present ministry of Christ. And that makes this pretty real. Buddha can't help you today. Muhammad can't help you today. And none of these modern founders of religion can help you. I'm rather amused, not amused exactly, but I have a friend of mine that told me how he was healed by a faith healer that was formerly here in Southern California. But she's dead now, and I said, is she able to help you now? Well, he said, of course not, she's dead. Well, I said, Jesus is alive. Our great high priest is alive today, and that's quite wonderful. I heard at the garden tomb a rather thrilling thing, and yet I doubt the effectiveness of it. A group of young people went to Moscow, and on Easter Sunday morning, they unfurled a banner at Lenin's tomb. And the banner read, Lenin is dead. Jesus is alive. And then they sang some of the resurrection songs there. And they were not arrested. I have a notion the Russians smiled at that. And I don't know that that would win any of the loss to Christ. 
But I would say for youth, it was certainly a brave effort. And I don't know, I feel like that it had a message. And that is the message of Hebrews. Lenin is dead. Jesus is alive. And he's the one today that can help us. He's the one we can turn to. Now, that's going to be the message of this book. And that's the reason that we're dwelling upon this. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, and he took back there a glory that even God did not have. And that was the body in which he had wrought out your redemption and mine upon this earth. He gave himself. He shed his precious blood that you and I might have life. Now we come to the seventh remarkable statement that is made concerning him here. It says in verse 4, "...being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." We are told here that he is superior to the angels. And we come now to a section that's going to take us through chapter 2, that Christ is superior to the angels. Now, angels figured in the ministry of the nation Israel. In fact, we're told that the law was given by the ministry and the agency of angels. And you will find that they figured prominently in the Old Testament. In fact, there were two cherubim up over the mercy seat. And we find that Isaiah had a vision of the seraphim. And in the last days, in the book of Revelation, after the church is removed, you find an angel ministry of judgment that's going to take place. But now may I say this and say it rather carefully. I've said it before, but it needs to be said. Angel ministry is not connected with the church at all. Now, I know someone is going to say, Brother McGee, after all, we have a guardian angel. By the way, where do you get that? I don't think we have a guardian angel. And they say, oh, it'd be so wonderful to have a guardian angel. Let me ask you a question. Are you a child of God? You say, yes. All right. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's the third person of the Godhead. Now, what is it that he can't do that an angel could do for you? You want to think that over for a while? May I say to you, instead of talking about angels, and their part today, may I say to you, my feeling is that angel ministry is not connected with the church at all. And right now, this becomes exceedingly difficult and dangerous because there is today a manifestation of demonism. And there are several writers very candidly are saying that demons are directing them the only thing is they call them angels. And may I say to you, friends, that angel ministry is not for today. Now, all of this got into the church because of the fact that some of the early church members, and I think they were very sincere, they had a marvelous gift of being painters. And they liked to draw angels. I doubt whether any of them ever saw an angel. But they painted angels. And if you've ever been in the Sistine Chapel in Rome and looked up at that ceiling, I tell you, you feel like angels are hovering over you. 
They are thick as pigeons up there. They are everywhere. They are connected with everybody and everything. Michelangelo certainly did like to paint angels. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I'm glad I've seen Sistine Chapel, but I wouldn't give five cents to see it again. Now, I know that will be a heartbreak for some art lover today, but that's all right. I don't care to see it again because it teaches the fact that there are angels connected with our ministry today. And we have to do with a living Savior today. And let's just push aside the angels because we don't have to go through angels. We don't need angels. We have the Holy Spirit. We have yonder a great intercessor for us. And let's get our mind off of angels and human authors of the book here and get our mind centered upon the person of Christ. He is superior to angels. Now to the Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians. They were saturated with the Old Testament, and they were saturated with the angel ministry, because the Old Testament has a great deal to say about that. Now you have here praise for the future. He is so much better than the angels. And I'm not looking forward to an angel blowing a trumpet, because that angel that's going to blow the trumpet isn't an angel at all. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ and his voice. In Revelation 1.10, we're told, John said he heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. And when he turned to see who the voice was, it was the glorified Christ. Now, that's the only trumpet that the church is going to hear. It is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he is so much better than the angels. You see here, we've had pardon for our sins, the past, provision for the present, for right now. We belong to the now generation, as we'll see here in Hebrews. And then there is praise for the future. He's better than the angels. As we have said, angels were very prominent in the ministry of the Old Testament. Now, let me read again verse 4. And we're going to move on from here. Will you notice? Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, an angel, of course, the word just simply means messenger. And frankly, it doesn't mean anything else other than that. And angels worship the Lord Jesus. They are creatures, as we are going to see here. Now, he is better than the angels, and that statement is made for us very definitely and dogmatically here. Now, the Lord Jesus, back in the Old Testament, apparently is the angel of the Lord. But now he's become a man, as we're going to see in the second chapter here. And we're going to find out that he now, having assumed human form, he does not appear as the angel of the Lord. He's the man Christ Jesus today. He is the Son of Man. And that is the emphasis that this epistle will put upon him. Now, we come to something here that is, I think, rather important to see. And that is that 
we have about 273 references to angels in the Bible. They were messengers. They were identified with the very throne of God. And we have now a series of quotations from the Old Testament. In fact, there are seven quotations from the Old Testament. Six of them are from the Psalms, and we have a reference. In fact, there'll be two references here to Psalm 110, and it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And there was one thing we saw when we studied the book of Psalms, and that is Psalms have more about Christ than any other thing. Well, it's a hymn book. It was the hymn book of the temple, but it's all about H-I-M, and it's praise to Him. And you have a more complete picture of Christ in the Psalms than you have in the Gospels. And these quotations here are very important. Now, you see, the writer here is quoting from the Old Testament to enforce his point. So let's look at these now as we begin to take them up one after another. Verse 5, For under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. All right? Now we've come here to this tremendous quotation. He says, This day have I begotten thee. That's a quotation from Psalm 2, verse 7. And you will recall in the Psalms, we've found out by going to Acts 13 that Paul quoted that in his great sermon in Antioch of Pisidia. And I think it's one of the greatest sermons Paul gave. And he quoted Psalm 2, 7, but it had no reference, Paul says, to Bethlehem. It has reference to the resurrection of Christ when he brought him back from the dead. And therefore, he is the only one that could die for the sins of the world. No angel could save us, friend. Only Christ could become a man and pay the penalty. And that penalty is death. The wages of sin is death. And he had to shed his blood, for without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And therefore, he made that redemption for you and for me. And then he's brought back from the dead. And why? Because he's the Son, and he's begotten from the dead. Now, again, he says, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That is from Second Samuel, the seventh chapter. Now, that is God's promise to David. When he made his covenant with David, he told him at that time, I'm going to bring one in your line. Now, there are those that say that that had a reference just to Solomon. My friend, this passage here makes it very clear that when God gave that to David, it had reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the scriptural confirmation of that. And yet I've heard liberal theologians and others, they go over, seesaw back and forth over this here and say that this covenant God made with David had only reference to Solomon. This makes it clear. 
It had reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he alone fulfilled it. Now, will you notice in verse 6 here, it says, And again, or let me turn that around just a little. And again, he bringeth in the first begotten into the world. He saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, again, you have a quotation here from Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, verse 43. And this is something quite wonderful. The angels of God, they are wonderful, but they are inferior to the Son, for they are his angels, they are his ministers, and they are his worshipers. They worship him. He doesn't worship them. Now, will you notice as we move on, verse 7, And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, we have here a quotation from Psalm 104, 4. Again, you see it. They're his angels, they're his ministers, and they're his worshipers. That's very important to see. You see, the writer here, and we believe it's Paul, is now showing forth the fact that Christ is superior to angels, and he's using the Old Testament Scriptures in order to prove that and to set that before us. You see how absolutely important these first two chapters are to put down a foundation for what's coming after, which is the present ministry of Christ for you and me today. Oh, that you and I might be conscious of the fact there is a living Christ at God's right hand right now. And he's more real than I am. Because when you hear this tape, I'm going to be somewhere else. I don't know where it'll be. We just don't know what a day will bring forth. But he's more real than I am because he's going to be right up yonder for you, my friend, and for me. He is the real living Christ today. Now we return to the first chapter of Hebrews at verse 8. And we are in this section where we're talking about angels. Christ is superior to angels. Now to the Hebrew who was acquainted with his Old Testament, and most of them were in that day, angels were very important. The fact of the matter is they were all important to them. And they thought of angels next to the throne of God itself. There were the cherubims on the veil and over the mercy seat. And the law came by angels. And you have the appearance of angels in the Old Testament to many of God's servants and to many of the prophets. Therefore, they were important. Now, I do not believe there is an angel ministry to the church today. The church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead. Now, we are living, therefore, in an age when angels do not appear to man to begin with. If you've seen one, may I say to you, you better check with your doctor or your psychologist because you really didn't see an angel. Always think of the two boys that met. They hadn't seen each other in a long time. And one said, the other said, are you married? And he said, yes, as are you. He said, yes, I'm married. 
He said, well, what kind of girl did you marry? Well, he says, I married an angel. And the other one says, you sure are lucky. Mine's still alive. Well, you don't marry angels. You may think so. But I know that God has made this universe so that there are things visible and invisible. In Colossians 1.16, we're told that Christ created things visible and invisible. You can't see an atom, but it's material, and it becomes energy. You can't see it, you can't experience it. And God created intelligences that are above man. And you and I live in a universe today where the Lord Jesus said, "...in my Father's house are many monai, abiding places." And therefore, intelligence created intelligences to live. And God has a great deal more, I think, than you and I can even dream of today. We didn't come from an animal. There is the material kingdom. There is the animal kingdom, the human kingdom, the spirit kingdom. And there's creatures that are below man and creatures that are above man. And you and I never came from an animal. And we never will become an angel. And I like that. Remember... The song, I want to be an angel and with the angels sing. And as a little boy, in the Sunday school I was made to attend, why they'd line up those little brats. I was the only good boy in the class, and the teacher would have us sing that. I want to be an angel and with the angels sing. And that's the last thing I wanted to be was an angel. And you know, I still feel that way, and I'm very happy that the Scripture makes it clear I'm not going to be an angel. Now, angels, as we've seen, are messengers, can be either human or divine. You have an order of creatures, supernatural, that we have in the Scripture. And the number of the angels, as I say, I think it would really surprise us if you and I had any conception of the number. They're called the host of heaven. And friends, that means there are a whole lot of them. And they are not apparently diminished or added to in any way. Well, the law came by angels. And as we have said, cherubims on the veil and the mercy seat. And Israel thought of them next to the throne of God. But Christ is superior to the angels. Now I come to verse 8 and I'm reading it. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Now, this is a quotation from Psalm 45, and it reveals that that is one of the great messianic psalms, that there's coming one in the line of David. David says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. In other words, David said, I could tell it to you lots better than I could write it. And David was so thrilled that there's one coming in his line. And that one now, the writer to the Hebrews says, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who will rule in righteousness. And God has not given that to any angel at all to do. In verse 9, Thou hast loved righteousness, hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is a tremendous statement here. Thy throne, O God. Now this is God, the Father, calling God the Son, God. You want to deny that he's God manifest in the flesh? 
then may I say you're contradicting God himself. God called him God. What are you going to call him? Well, I don't know about you. I'm going to call him God. He's God manifest in the flesh. This is a tremendous statement. He is superior to angels because he's going to rule. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords that's to rule over this earth someday. We're not through with this. Verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. Verse 12, And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Now, we have here this tremendous statement that he is the Creator. And since he is the Creator, angels are creatures. You have tremendous contrast that's given to us here in this particular section. Angels are creatures. He is the Creator. And this, by the way, is a quotation from Psalm 102, verses 25 and 27. Tremendous statement. Now, verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister? for them who shall be the heirs of salvation. Now, somebody's going to say to me, but it does say here that they're going to minister to the heirs of salvation. No, no. Let's read it like it is. To those who shall be. This is looking forward to when God again turns to the nation Israel and to the Gentile world after the church is removed. You see, God's moving on a program and a purpose, as we've seen, and... When he does, then again they will minister. But the interesting thing is, it doesn't say those who are right now the heirs of salvation. And I think that we should notice that. Now, Christ is a son. Angels are servants. Christ is king. Angels are subjects. Christ is the creator. And angels are creatures. And he today is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. God never said that to an angel. He did say that to his son, and his son someday shall rule. May I say to you, this is a tremendous passage, a tremendous section of the Word of God. Now, we have in this section here, therefore, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ set before us. You have here the exaltation of Christ. He's higher than the angel. 